I'm Peter Marks, theater critic for the Washington Post. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic for the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for the New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. Welcome to episode 40 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. And all right, guys, number 40. It's very, it's a milestone for us, yeah, and wow. we're going to celebrate in style. 40, yes, two hours, hours in life two, I, I spent 40. 80 hours, or how many hours have I spent with you two? <laughs> not enough, not enough. I guess. Um, we're going to celebrate in style, our, our oh. 40th episode with a very special Tell guest. Us. Very special guest. Who we're is like it? A, we're like a lifetime movie with a very special guest. I can't wait to find out. Um, today, we're welcoming in our... Luxurious studio, uh, the writer and actor Tracy Letts. Although sometimes you're going to wonder, Wait. should we say the actor and writer Tracy Letts? Tracy Letts? Tracy Letts, yes. That's uh, he's a kind of like he's a young up and comer. Uh, <laughs> he he's you, yeah. you may hear of him soon. Right. Um, Tracy's uh, latest play, uh, or actually the latest to hit New York, mm-hmm. um, is called Linda Vista. It's currently at the Helen Hayes. Uh, on Broadway uh, after a premiere at Steppenwolf in Chicago in April 2017. And a run in Los Angeles. Yes, it's, it's been around. It's yeah. finally uh, here in New York. Uh, and the Broadway cast shares several actors with the Chicago one, most notably uh, Yann Barford in the lead role of Wheeler, a 15-year-old jerk. Although, actually, one of the great things about the play is like how much of a jerk he is. Maybe he's not. Is he meant to be? We don't know. Oh, um, he's a oh, jerk. He is. He is. And that's yeah. what's wonderful about the yeah, play. Yeah. Uh, and Willer has issues with life and women and pretty much pretty much everything, which is why he's such a great Tracy Litt's character. Uh, Tracy's other plays include Killer Joe, Bug, Men from Nebraska, Superior Donuts, and I'm going to say, I've got to say, but we're actually... Having donuts to celebrate that. We have a box this is of a first superior donuts. In 40 episodes. Yeah. So we've been waiting for Elizabeth to bring donuts from yes. this bakery in Brooklyn. I needed, Future guests, I don't was, get your hopes up. I was, I was waiting for a prompt. Um, Mary Page Marlowe and The Minutes, which is actually also coming to Broadway, and I believe it's starting in February. Wow. And of course, there's a little play you may have heard of called August Osage County, uh, which won the Pulitzer and the Tony. Uh, and, if I may say so myself, was number 19 on the New York Times uh, list of the 25 best American plays since Angels in America. And I, I love it very hard to write the blurb for that one. So I'm very, very happy about it. And so in case this is just not quite enough, Tracy, I think, is one of the very, very few people, I wonder if he's the only one, um, to have two Tonys, one as a playwright for... Osage County, and one as an actor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Well, I've been to Harvey Firestein, don't you think? Oh, yes. Good for one. Torch Song. Good trilogy. one. Good one. Yes. I yes. think. I mean, did yeah. that win a Tony? For, for, for Torch Song, he did, didn't he? Yeah. Oh. For the hmm. original. It's a short, short list. Yeah. Yeah, it's a I'm very just short trying, list. I mean, that was off it's the top very, of my uh, head. I can't, um, but I bet there are others. Yeah. I mean, there must be a couple of others. But anyway, he is in a, in a particularly uh, rarefied category. And Tracy Letts, as an actor, really has come into his own in the last few years. You know, he's in that, he's of that age. There's a kind of uh, white male casting thing that happens to a, 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 an actor in middle age where, he, where they suddenly become, I guess, you know, representatives of so many sort of touchstones in American life that he can play all these roles. And that's something about him also, I think. I think there is something very solid, and he projects a kind of 
um, even a vinegary sort of sense of irony sometimes even in a very straight part and I mean straight by straight I mean kind of conventional mm -hmm. role but you may I know him best perhaps from uh, the, uh, the the series the Showtime series Homeland he was on for like I think 17 episodes if my Wikipedia memory is correct <laughs> uh, and uh, he played a um, a kind of nasty slash sometimes sympathetic uh, first senator and then a CIA director. He was sort of knitted into the uh, into the um, the narrative. I think a time. nasty slash sympathetic is a <laughs> applies to a lot yeah, of. Yeah, well, he pulls that off, but he's also you know I mean and you know people are gonna re uh, listeners are gonna write in about the things they um, they uh, know about him. Almost ubiquitous these days on screens, small and large. Um, you've probably seen him a dozen other times, and in and of late in movies everywhere. He was in The Post. He was uh, in Lady Bird, played great roles, and currently is in Ford versus Ferrari, and also in Little Women in Greta Gerwig's new Little yeah, Women. That's so, coming up soon. Yeah. So uh, it's it's one of those extraordinarily ever expanding careers. You know what I think is most striking about what you two have been saying about Tracy is the sheer range that it implies. I mean, not only is he a major playwright of, of our time, but he writes all kinds of plays about all kinds of people, from the sleazy trailer trash of Killer Joe to this freshly divorced misanthrope in Linda Vista. And not only is he an actor, but he's a character actor who specializes in the same kinds of complex, widely varied people that you find in his own plays. The first time I saw him on stage in Chicago, at Steppenwolf, he was playing Teach in American Buffalo, giving a performance that I described in my review as brash, sleazy, and foul. And the second time I saw him, it was as George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, in which he starts out as a pitiful milksop and ends up as a larger-than-life demon. I've said more than once in print that I think he might just be the greatest character actor we have here in America at the present moment. So, I mean, that and a playwright, too, life is unfair. And so, without further ado, Tracy Letts, welcome to Three on the Isle. Thanks. We're going to start by asking you the most obvious of questions. Could you tell us a little bit about where you come from and your training in your two different fields, acting and playwriting? Oh, it's uh, <laughs> such a random story. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what makes them good, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I come from uh, Oklahoma. I was born in Tulsa. My parents were both academics. They taught at a small state college in southeastern Oklahoma, a town called Durant, where I grew up, a town of about 12,000 people. Did you lose an accent? It, it never took uh, or maybe it took a little bit, and then I, I corrected it when I moved to Chicago. I don't know. <laughs> Correct. <but>, uh, <laughs> uh, my my family all speaks with an accent, and yet I don't. So, Mine does too. I'm from Southeast Missouri. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, I uh, they they taught at this small college, and I grew up in a small college town, and I left when I was 17, 18 years old and went to Dallas because it was the closest town, uh, about 100 miles away from where I grew up. And I went there with my little headshot and resume and tried to get uh, tried to get acting work. So you were doing theater in high school? Then? Uh, there wasn't much theater in high school. I'd started in community theater when I was 15 and then uh, 
Then yeah, I did the little bit I could do in high school, and I did one semester of college in that little in that little town. Well, back up just a tiny bit. How did you get the bug? Did you see something and say, "I want to do this"? My folks were both. They were teachers, but they were also really creative people, and they, uh, they really, there was a real emphasis on uh, creativity in our house. There, there was always a, we, we had a lot of books on the shelves, and uh, we watched a lot of movies, and we went to whatever little theater we could go to in my little town and uh, uh, listened to a lot of music. And my folks both had uh, amazing second careers, actually. My, my dad, as an actor, after uh, he, he took early retirement uh, when he was in his mid-50s, and he made about 40 films, television shows. They were making a lot of stuff in Dallas at the mm. time. I had no so idea. he worked a lot in film and TV. I saw him in, in, in You saw him in August, yeah. Osage County, yeah. yeah. So that was kind of the, the biggest theater thing he had done. But I, you know, he did a lot of theater locally in my little town. He... Uh, I think the first play the first play I remember seeing was To Kill a Mockingbird, the old adaptation mm, of To Kill yeah. a Mockingbird, with my dad playing Atticus. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So that yeah, it made an impression. Doomed. For Do you sing? <laughs> Not at all. So you didn't, it was all plays in, the, in community yeah. theater? Yeah. Like, what was the first part you played? Uh... In Tishomingo, Oklahoma, there was a community Where? theater. Tishomingo, a small town about an hour away from Durant, there was a community theater, and uh, a woman named Katie Morris was directing a production of the Solid Gold Cadillac. <laughs> oh, wow. And, Nobody does that anymore. <laughs> and she asked my dad to be in it because he was a local actor, uh-huh. and uh, she asked him to be in it, and he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to have to drive the hour to Tishomingo. So she asked me to play the narrator in the solid gold Cadillac, knowing that my dad would then have to drive me to Tishomingo. As long as he was driving me, he might as well do the play. So my first play was with my dad uh, when I was 15, doing the solid gold Cadillac. It's playing really the solid gold Cadillac in Tishomingo. Howard it's Tyson a line and from our play. <laughs> yeah. I did. It's too really much. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I got into it. And I... My uh, brother, uh, six years older, was a uh, musical prodigy. Uh, he's a great jazz musician. He lives and works in Singapore, uh, and he's a great jazz musician. So growing up mm. sort of in his shadow a little bit, uh, I even played the tenor sax, which was his instrument, though I just never had the feel for for music. I just, uh, I, I don't know, that musical brain, that musical mind, it's the genius. way it works. It's and uh, I never had it, and he did. And so I, well, I don't know, I was kind of scouting around for my thing, and I think when I did the Solid Gold Cadillac of all things, I was like, oh, I really like this. <laughs> what, when, when did playwriting come in as a possibility for you? I had always... Well, talking about my, my parents' second careers, my, my mom was a writer, and, uh, and she also took early retirement from school teaching when her first novel was published and then picked up by Oprah Winfrey for her book club. Wow. Oh, my God. I had no idea. Yeah. It was called Where the Heart Is, about oh. a, a, a pregnant girl who gives birth in a Walmart in Oklahoma. What name does she publish under? Billy Letts Billy is Letts. her name. And she... Uh, that was made into a film with Natalie Portman and Ashley Judd. But it was a, when Oprah made it a pick, of course, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Are you, are you making this up as we no, go along? No, this is, it's, it's weird. I know. It's kind of a weird story. Uh, but, improbable is the nice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, 
so I was I had always written I always had more of an inclination toward writing even as a little kid I was uh, I was a, a writer and writing stories it didn't occur to me to write I had written a couple of bad screenplays, but it didn't occur to me to write for the theater until after I had moved to Chicago. Steppenwolf. Well, it was, I wasn't working at Step. Well, that's not entirely true. So I moved to Chicago when I was 20, couldn't get arrested, <laughs> left after about a year to go home and make some money, some odd jobs, and then went back to Chicago. And the first show I auditioned for when I went back was Glass Menagerie at Steppenwolf, part of their educational outreach series, they called it at the time. Fran Guinan was directing mm. the show and uh, cast me as Tom. And so that was the first show I did in Chicago and the first show I did with Steppenwolf. But then uh, I worked at a lot of uh, small theaters in Chicago, storefront theaters all around town. Mm. It's quite a scene. Oh, it's an incredible scene. When I moved there in the mid-'80s, I mean, it was really in the full flower of because of Steppenwolf's success, there was a just a massive influx of actors and writers and directors from around the country saying this is a viable place to go and practice our craft. You know, I, I don't think Chicago had really been that until Bob Sickinger in the late 1960s had sort of started the the uh, the, the modern storefront scene in Chicago. And prior to that, it had been known primarily as an out of town tryout spot right. for New York shows but after that it started to establish its own identity and uh, and then with the success of Steppenwolf which started in the 74, 75 and then really exploded in the early 80s and that's the point at which all these people start saying I want to go there. well a lot of people saying I want to go there and be a part of Steppenwolf but in lieu of being part of Steppenwolf they would try to create a theater in the Steppenwolf model a bunch of kids who came from a college theater program would come to town and they would kind of band together and uh, get a storefront and put up a show. And they're still doing it. They are still doing it. We have over uh, 200 theaters in Chicago. It's a remarkable scene. You just said we. Do you think of yourself as a Chicagoan? Yeah. I, I, I still live there. Carrie and I live there. I've lived there for over 30 years. And so that's that's your that continues to be your main residence? Yeah. Though... We're not there very often, but that, mm-hmm. that's still where the house is. And uh, we, we, we rent a place here in New York, but <laughs> we feel very much like uh, Chicago ambassadors presenting work in New York when we're here. Well, all right, so what was your first play that got produced and you thought, okay, I want to do this? It was Killer Joe. It was uh, uh, in... I had written it in 1990. You know, as an actor, you have a lot of downtime, <laughs> unemployment. <laughs> uh, and so I had, it was purpose-built, that play. It was built with the idea that it could be done in a storefront, mm-hmm. uh, a uh, unit set, small unit set, uh, five actors, five young actors, uh, and written with a certain... Bloodlust, a certain uh, right, written in the style of rock and roll in your face theater, right? Written with that idea, so it, it was it was definitely uh, purpose built. I saw it. Uh, that was the first Tracy Let's Play I saw. I saw it downtown in Manhattan with I think it was Amanda Plummer. Was it Amanda Plummer? Yep. Yeah. And I remember thinking when they, they said there's this guy Tracy Let's wrote it, and I remember seeing it, thinking this. This guy must be the scariest guy who ever lived. <laughs> I just couldn't even imagine approaching you. I, you it terrified. The play was so funny, but so 
terrifying in yeah. so many levels. I thought this guy must be like a drug addict <laughs> who you know drinks himself silly. You know who's crazy. I mean, I just had this like wild idea of who you were. It's but, funny. Yeah, the how first time I ever saw you on stage was his teach in in American Buffalo. Oh right. And I thought, oh my god. And he wrote Killer Joe. What kind of person is this? Yeah, exactly. I just you know. I, did, I had this, like, decadent sense of this guy. <laughs> well, that's odd, isn't it? We sometimes ascribe those, those qualities. We see a piece and right. we ascribe the qualities of piece to the writer. It's it's I think it's rare. inevitable. Right, it probably is. It's rarely accurate, I suppose. I, you know, the truth is, at the time I wrote Killer Joe, I was reading a lot of noir fiction. Mm. I was reading a lot of Jim Thompson, mm. who was oh, also from yes. Oklahoma. and. Uh, and I, I just had the thought while I was reading that stuff, wow, I wonder if this could be done on stage because I had never right. seen it. Right. Well, I was going to say, what I, I really think of, of Killer Joe and Bug as, a, as two, they're very much genre plays, which right. is not done very much in theater. I, I don't know why, but like thrillers and science fiction-y, right. well, in a very broad sense, yeah. are not done much. Was that something you were, you seem to you know, say that you really had that in mind? I did, yeah. It seemed it was a it was an interesting challenge. I mean, mm-hmm. when you read Jim Thompson, you get a little scared. In the same way, you kind yeah. of think, "Wow, who the, the guy who's at the at oh, the, the wheel here is a bit of a madman." The killer is right. Right. Anything can yeah. happen, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was definitely part of the idea of of writing that piece. And yet, your epigraph is from Faulkner. Yeah, while well, I was reading Faulkner at the time too, right? So, <laughs> you, know, you mentioned Oklahoma, uh, uh, Tracy. I wonder how much do you think was it an advantage to be for some for some place like off the beaten path? Did that help in terms of your perspective on theater and how audiences might view um, the rest of the country? Did that have a? You mentioned, you know, I mean, clearly Oklahoma pops up right uh, repeatedly in your work. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it. Uh, it makes me the artist I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gave you a subject matter too, up to a point. Sure. Anyway. Yeah. It gives you a milieu and people. To, I mean, I had lived in a trailer park. I, I knew something about that life. So it wasn't purely from the pages of fiction. I knew something about it. Um, at the same time, you know, you you also find certain doors are closed to you because you come from that kind of. Uh, place uh what do you mean people well, are making certain kinds of assumptions I, about sure you. of course yeah making assumptions about people who come from oklahoma i mean right. i came from a family of academics and right. yet we're always portrayed in in the media right oh, we're portrayed oh, as rubes and right. hicks and right. all that kind of stuff right. and there's some truth to that but it's also true that there's a lot of colleges in oklahoma yeah, right. there's a lot of educated right. people right. 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 Do, do you feel like you you mentioned like that a killer show was a very much like a, a rock, like had this rock energy? Were you actually one of the things that I thought when I first saw it and and but were like, those are rock and roll plays. The guy who wrote this listens to rock and he knows it. Is that is it? Am I completely off base in thinking that? Well, or? I'm not a rock and roll. You're not. Guy. No, I'm not That's actually. Funny. I'm a I'm a jazz guy. It's a, uh, but. Uh, uh, no, well, you've just written a play, or not just, what? obviously, we're, the world is a little bit behind you, but you have a play on Broadway whose protagonist, if that's the right word for him, is a Steely Dan fan. Yeah, well, yeah, that's more... Would that be that, your... That's uh, more my style. Your, your yeah. catchment area, <laughs> might as well. <laughs> that's yeah. more my style. But, uh, you know, Chicago, we, 
we're we're known for that style of theater, whether it's fair or not. I mean, the truth is that Steppenwolf, mm-hmm. a lot of their reputation was based on True West and mm-hmm. uh, Balm and Gilead, right. but they were also doing Arms and the Man. They were also doing uh, they were doing a lot of different material. We mm-hmm. still do a lot of different material, so we 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 got acclaim, we got some attention for doing that uh, raw rock and roll. Uh, Remains Theater was another uh, purveyor of that style. I think I saw Marjorie Morningstar at Steppenwolf. I mean, uh, about Herman Woke. Yeah, I think it was a. That was a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marjorie so it wasn't just Morningstar. <laughs> yeah, Marjorie Morningstar. Uh, uh, yeah. How do you think your your acting and your writing play off of each other? Like, what is their relationship with each other? Because I don't, for instance, I don't think you've written for yourself. No. Why not? But, well, I, I guess. I've never thought I'd be as good at uh, either job if I were trying to do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, 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 both jobs require a lot of work and attention. Right. And uh, if I'm trying to do two things at the same time, I just I don't think I would be as good at it. So it always made more sense to just focus on the writing. Uh, I mean, as a writer, I'm also depending a lot on my director. I'm depending a lot on my actors. I depend a lot on everybody in the room to to help to help with the creation of the piece. It's very collaborative. If you've ever directed, by the way, I don't know about it. I've directed two plays. I directed uh, Great Men of Science by Glenn Berger at the Looking Glass Theater Company, and I directed. Uh, People Annihilation, or My Liver is Senseless by <laughs> Werner Schwab at the Trap oh, Door Theater. Play. Yes. Wow. <laughs> there are two plays that I really wanted to do that I, I tried to get other directors interested in, and they weren't. And I finally realized, oh, the reason I want to do them is because I have such strong feelings about them. And so I became the director of those pieces, and I loved doing it, and I and I don't want to make a habit of it. I would only do it if I read something. I was like, I'm the only one who wants to get this done. Well, they say that we we write the books and plays that we want to read and see. What makes you want to write a play? That's a good question, Terry. Never the same thing twice, I don't think. It, there's never a... There's no pattern... I always look up on the shelf at the plays I've written and say, how the hell did you do that? I I don't know how you write a play. Mm. I don't know how you start. I know that for me, typically, I spend years in contemplation of a piece before I write it. I Mm. think about it, and I think about it, and I think about it. I have to think it through somewhat. I have to know how it ends before Mm -hmm. I start. I can't write unless I know the ending. That doesn't mean I can't change the ending. I've done that before. But when I'm writing the piece, the writing process tends to be very fast. Mm. The thinking process beforehand is very long, and the writing is very fast, and then the editing production process after that is very long. Can you you actually write a play while you're playing a character for somebody else? Uh, Rarely. It has to be a, a concentrated amount of time where you've got to yeah, basically so I can so yeah. I can get back to it. Yeah. Let's talk about a specific case in point. Then Linda Vista's running on Broadway. How did it come to be? See, and the and the specific case you 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 choose is one that that uh, is the exception to the rule because Linda Vista I did not think about for years. The truth is that I I was doing some free riding in between jobs, uh, which. Uh, I don't know about you guys, sometimes I, uh, just to keep my 
fingers moving on the typewriter and keep my mind nimble, I will just roll a piece of paper into the typewriter and She's start typing. She's in a typewriter, I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, and it was a, a dialogue between these two guys emerged. The opening so, of the play. Some of that dialogue still remains mm-hmm. in the play, in that first scene, and I didn't know who they were, I didn't know what they were talking about, but I found myself, I don't know, it was just something kind of springing out of my unconscious, subconscious mind, and uh, I started to get interested in one of those guys, and started to kind of follow him into his story a little bit, and that's where Linda Vista came. Had you yourself ever ever weathered a midlife crisis? Well, I've probably weathered several. (laughs) (laughs) How many midlives do we get? That's exactly... Until we know how it ends, we don't really know where the midpoint is. I thought in Linda Vista, and I don't know you, I've never never seen Tracy, uh, you interviewed at length, but it seemed to me that the voice that Jan channels seemed most powerfully yours. I felt like I was hearing a kind of... Um, a laying out of a of a philosophy that could have been from Tracy Letts. I don't know why. It just I heard you very maybe because I have seen you enough in performance mm. to ha- have a sense of your voice. But that's what I felt as if you were you were talking more directly through uh, him. Than- I think there's some truth to that. I think that uh, it, for whatever reason, I felt like the access to this guy for me, needed to be more immediate than it sometimes is. You know, one of the interesting things I I first started to explore with the play was the idea that, uh, as evidenced by some of that Trump discussion at the beginning, Mm -hmm. when he was talking about Trump, and I was thinking about... myself, my... my, uh, the the way in which I... my views on politics, culture, etc., I I just... for me, they're absolutely unimpeachable, that I, I just <laughs> occupy a real moral high ground mm. with all of that stuff. And yet, in my uh, relations, especially uh, in matters of love, I've, I've acted, like most of us, I've acted uh, unethically. I, I've, uh, times in my life where I've not treated people with the compassion and respect they deserve. Mm. And so I, that dichotomy for me mm. was something that was worthy of exploration. And I was, it was really intriguing to find how many people, when I started to show the play around, how many people that resonated with. Mm-hmm. People who, who could identify with that, that same dichotomy in themselves. That's so I interesting. made a point both times that I saw it of seeing Linda Vista with women friends. Mm. And they were both very struck by how this guy never got let off the hook. Although the person who saw it with me on Broadway also said to me, you know, he probably ended up with a woman ten minutes after the play ended, too. <laughs> suggesting that well, I had there's something a, irresistible about the character. I, I had a, a female friend who said, I love the show, he's such an asshole. And another one said, I hate the show, he's such an asshole. Right, yeah. Uh, I love the show be- because he's an asshole. <laughs> but uh, how much of an asshole is he meant to be? That's the thing. That's that's just what I keep thinking about the show because as you just see, it's that it kind of put its finger on this hypocrisy of this kind of bit of, of grandstanding right. that we all do. But the fact that it's just life is too messy. Right. Well, I, I guess I think hopefully if these things work out well, they become kind of Rorschach tests, right? Mm-hmm. People, right. Are, yeah. <laughs> people look at them and they look at like the character. Radiohead. <laughs> exactly. People can uh, well they they measure themselves against the person, their own behaviors, their own mm-hmm. histories, 
And so, you know, the truth is I never set out to do a takedown mm-hmm. of any set or subset of people. At the same time, I wasn't interested in some kind of meathead defense uh, of that same group of people. Right, right, I just exactly. thought, let's, let's look at a, a guy in full, hopefully, with all of the contradictions and all of the flaws and some of his good behavior and some of his lousy behavior. You know, one of the, one of the really gratifying moments for me was very early in the process. Maybe we were in previews in Chicago. And I heard Dexter, my director, Dexter Bullard, talking to a, an actress of some note. I won't expose her on this podcast, but he was talking to her about <laughs> we, play. We forgive you. No note <laughs> for you. And... Uh, <laughs> He uh, was t- he was sort of holding forth about uh, the gender politics of the play, and she interrupted him to say, "I'm Wheeler. Mm. Don't take Wheeler away from mm. me. Don't tell me I can't identify with that. Don't tell me I have to identify with the women, and he I, is therefore my adversary. Mm. I identify with that guy as well." And I thought, "Well, that's that's." I really completely agree with that because I also hate Radiohead and love Barry <laughs> Lyndon, and I thought, "Well, because it, it you gets love to Barry Lyndon? That's I, disturbing." I, <laughs> But it gets to the fact that we're now so often defined by our cultural taste. Right, right. And on paper, I I would think a guy who hits Radiohead, you know, (laughs) he's great in my book. And it really makes you rethink the fact that, yes, now we are all defined by our cultural taste. That really strikes me, in fact, about the characterization is that there's, you've got, conservative is not the right word, but he has rather old-fashioned cultural In some ways. Mm -hmm. In some some ways. And at least relative to the present moment. Yeah. And yet his politics are the politics you would expect of a person like him with a background like that. I don't know that there's a disconnect, but there's certainly something interesting going on. Yeah. uh, And again, some of that's drawn from me. You know, the truth is, Wheeler is, he's a composite, Mm -hmm. uh, not only of me, but a lot of my friends who are in their mid-50s, and some of them who have gone through terrible, life-changing divorces and have kids, and a lot, of, a lot of the issues he's navigating in the play, they're navigating as well. Some of them have come to see the play. I've, you know, they're friends of mine, so they know they're fair game. That's the way it goes. <laughs> Do they see exactly. themselves in it? It's funny how uh, sometimes when they see themselves, they go, that's me, you wrote a play about me. I say, no, I actually didn't. Or sometimes it just goes completely over their heads. They go, oh, wow, what a jerk. I can't identify with that guy at all. Uh, Tracy, one of the things, you know, it's funny, I, I'm thinking, uh, that one of the one of the images I have of you in my head is there's a commercial running now endlessly about Ford versus Ferrari oh, in a right. movie you're in, and there's a scene, just a snippet of you in the car in the passenger seat, and obviously you're being driven at a very high speed in a very dangerous situation, and you start sobbing. Yeah, there's a weeping thing, and yeah. it was like shocking to me <laughs> to see you lose your composure right? because so many of the characters you play mm. are so composed there's part of their their sort of aura is you know if it's whether it's Homeland or George in Virginia Woolf there's a reserve there's always like a, a a part of this person you can't quite get to and yet on a stage when you're writing you expose all that you know these characters are constantly losing their their center of gravity in your plays, which is a really interesting dichotomy. And I wonder if you're drawn in your, you know, is there a part of you that is harder for you to project in a performance of your own that you can, that you can let other characters express through you? Wow. I don't know. That's a really interesting uh, take on it, Peter. I don't know. I, I, 
you know, I, I, I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to playwriting is because I'm so attracted to uh, vulnerability in people. Uh, there's something about all of us in a room together when we're watching a play, the vulnerability of that moment, the vulnerability of the performer, and sometimes even the vulnerability of the audience when something is exposed for them. It's one of the reasons there's so much, uh, so much, there, that there's nudity and sex in a lot of my plays. Mm. Because uh, as, a, as a, an arrow in the quiver to, to help uh, expose that vulnerability, I mean, it's people at their most vulnerable, right? right? They're, most, they're most exposed, literally and otherwise. And, uh, and so I, I'm always looking for the soft part, mm. the soft spot. That you know, one of the things we we're trying to do is get people invested in the character and in the story and in the outcome. And one of the great things in Linda Vista for me is to hear people with such investment in whether or not that guy can find some redemption, mm. whether or not that guy gets just taken down, mm. taken out, mm. right? At the point at which he's asking that uh, the character of Jules to take him back. And you can, you can actually hear it being voiced in the audience. People who really, they have great investment in, in that outcome. Right. That's to, to get them invested and yet having different hope-for outcomes, mm -hmm. that's what we're looking for. And in Linda Vista, we're, there's this great gasp that goes up yeah. at a certain point. I won't describe when uh, when, the, when Wheeler makes a choice, a romantic choice, right. that really drives home who he is, but yeah. the audience is like deflated yeah. by it. It's yeah. as if he's he is actually uh, solving. He's addressing their deepest concern about him, and he's, right. dis he's disappointing. He them. disappoints them. A gasp uh, is one of the two sounds I most love to hear from an audience. Sure, me the too. other is nervous laughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I often have it's... actors coming to me going, "They're laughing. Should they be laughing?" And I go, "It's fine that they're laughing. <laughs> they're listening. If they're laughing, they're listening." I had to explain that to. I wrote an opera with a, a, a composer who had no experience with the stage. And we got laughter in the first scene in places where he wasn't expecting it. Right. And he said, is something wrong? Do I need to put in more instant chords here? And I said, well, it's okay. Yeah. They're, they're listening. bored when yeah. they're laughing yeah. like that. How fulfilling. I, 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 it's a wonderful... Um, it's a wonderful double life you lead, Tracy, in terms of um, your performing life is as rich as your writing life. I mean, this happens, how many, you know, there are playwrights who've tried to do this, there are dramatists who try to move back and forth, uh, but you're like, you're in every movie this fall. <laughs> you're Mr. Da, I mean, you're in uh, Little you're in Women. Little Women, you're in Ford versus Ferrari, you just were in The Post. I now I sound like, you know, I'm like, you're on Entertainment Tonight, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, uh, something's happening here. Is this all, is this like, do you just have a really good agent? Are you coming into some, Sense of yourself that I'm, you you're your baffled. I'm just the luckiest <laughs> son of a bitch alive. I'm just you don't get any luckier than that. I really am. I, I'm, I, I, you know, it's been a long, slow, hard. Uh, it's a lot of hard work. It's been a long, slow process mm. to get to this point in my right, life. Right. But uh, you know, I, I pointed out to somebody recently. They were they were, well, I, I, to make a long story short, I said, you know, I got. My first credit card when I was 43 years old. It's not as if 
right, not exactly to the man born here. Right, 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 right. right. A lot of yeah. a lot of years uh, of work, and the truth is that I always kind of uh, uh, managed these careers on separate tracks. I never tried to put the two together, as we were talking about. You know, would I have been on Broadway in Virginia Woolf had it not been for August Osage County? Who I don't knows? know. Who knows? But what do you do? When, I mean, you're you're a wordsmith. What if you have to say a line that isn't up to what you might want to write? How does one navigate that with a, in, in the context? You just give yourself over to the project and say, "I'm hired to do this." Uh, I mean, that sound great every line they're giving me here. It's a little wooden. This particular uh, dialogue, or do you go, you know what? I could actually polish this up a little bit well it, if i am looking to polish it up a little bit it's never i don't think it's actually with my writer's hat on mm. i think i'm approaching the work as an actor as i always did as an actor which is you know in the theater of course the the playwright's word is sacrosanct the, the, yeah absolutely i mean we understand that hierarchy in the theater the playwright is, is the boss uh it's in not, this country. In this country. In, in film and TV, it, it's not that way, right? The, the writer comes further down. And, of course, I'm not entirely comfortable with just, uh, just haphazardly changing a, a writer's lines on the set. But it depends on what you're making. If you're making a television show where they're, frankly, cranking the writing out, they know they're cranking it out. They're hoping, they're counting on an actor to, to, to help uh, it, and so sometimes I think that's one of the reasons I've been able to work in TV because I've been able to give that kind of actor's help. Uh, hmm. But no, I'm I'm not actually reading a script going, oh, uh, just let me have a crack at it, let me give it a polish. I I, I never do that. The, if you see me in something though in film or TV, it's because I thought the script was good. That's the only. Hmm. That's the only method I know to choose material. And I'm very fortunate right now that I get to choose a little bit in terms of material. So, so you, you've adapted some of your plays into films. Have you, I don't think, have you written directly for the screen? Like an original, is that something no. you're, no. Is that something you're just not interested in, in, in the medium, directly? Or is there anything where you've, is there any time where you've thought, this could be hard to pull off as a play for just practical reasons. Uh, what, what yet, if I... I haven't yet got to that point. The truth is I've thought as I think about a project for a long time and I'm trying to think about what to do with it, I often think, how can I make it work on stage? Mm. Can it live on stage? Uh, you know, writing for film and television is lucrative, much more lucrative than the theater. But the truth is, I love the theater, and the theater needs good writing, and actors in the theater need good things to say. And I, I mean, and I'm part of a theater company, and that's absolutely part of my life as an artist, is helping create work for that theater company, work that supports and moves forward our mission in and that that's theater. Part of company. being a Chicago one, I yeah, would guess. I think so. You know. Um, we were talking about this before you came to the studio, but I have never met you before today. I've also never seen you interviewed. The first time I saw you was as Teach in uh, American Buffalo. That's also the first time my wife's father saw me. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Holy crap. And, she was and, like, he was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and the second time I saw you was as George. Ah. 
And I don't think I would, if these two men had met on the street, mm. I, I wouldn't have realized it was the same person. Mm. And I had no sense of who you were. Mm. I, I, that's part of why I was so interested in meeting you today in the studio. You're a real character actor. The work of yours that I've seen, you just seem to dissolve into a role. Are you conscious of this? Inhabiting a role, transforming yourself? Well, it's my job. You know, I I, I think that as a Chicago actor, and I, I won't speak for New York actors because I don't know, but... As a Chicago actor, the first question we ask, and, I, and I've, I'm pretty sure of this after 30 years of working in Chicago theater, the first question we ask as actors is, how can I help tell this story? What, what, what's my contribution to getting this story told? And so you do what's necessary to tell the story. That also applies in film and TV. You know, I did a, I did a film called The Lovers with Deborah Winger, and I played a lead. It's the only time I've played a lead in film or television. And I was nervous about it. And we were in a situation where Deborah and I met uh, in the makeup trailer two hours before we were oh making out God. in front of the camera. You know, it was one of those Are kind of situations. That, no, it's true. Is, is that more stressful or less? Because in a way, it might be actually less stressful. It's if more you stressful. Have more, okay. <laughs> it's more so. stressful. So, uh, and I talked to her about that. I said, I'm not accustomed to playing these leading roles. I said, I've played them in the theater, but for the most part, You know, film and TV, I'm the guy ordering the drone strike. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, she said to me, she said, well, the responsibilities are a little different. And I said, tell me about that. And she said, well, uh, she said, if you're further down on the call sheet, your responsibility is to move the story along, mm -hmm. you know, right? Get the information out mm -hmm. and get the, get the story moving, keep mm -hmm. the story moving. Right. She said, if you are one or two on the call sheet, your responsibility is to be interesting. In every scene. Oh my God! Oh, so <laughs> you have to find a way. To we, we have to get her in. <laughs> That's, I'm amazed by that. Well, it's, it's, that totally makes sense. It makes like a, a lot of sense. Into another world. And uh, I, and of course, there's a unique kind of pressure as we're about to go out and shoot for <laughs> in a couple of hours. I'm like, oh, I have to be interesting. Find a way <laughs> well, to be interesting. Yeah, But I knew what she meant. And you yeah. obviously you can see it in Deborah's work because my God, is she interesting? Right? Mm -hmm. You can't take your eyes off her when yeah. she's on the screen. Very interesting. And I certainly look at that as my job when I'm a character actor playing those parts, ordering the drone strike. It's like, let's keep it moving. Let's keep the story going. Same thing when I'm on stage. It's just like, what is necessary to help tell the story? Again, responsibilities may be a little different if you're playing Joe Keller or if you're playing George. But, you know, we do have a responsibility to tell our story, uh, not only in a way that captivates an audience but also does it efficiently right we've uh, we've all sat way too long in the indulgence of uh, moments maybe by a director or other actors and I, I to your question about the way that the two disciplines influence each other I think that's one of the ways mm -hmm. you know as a you see the bad habits of actors when you're in the writer's chair and you see the, the some of the worst inclinations of writers when you're trying to make the material work as an actor and so hopefully you can cut to the quick uh, and you you can you can get down to to what it the 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 place where the two disciplines intersect is storytelling mm. what's the most efficient and effective way to tell our story so okay so if you're high let's say you know Tracy Letts is moving up on the call sheet uh, if someone approached you and said 
Tracy, there's a Tracy Let's part we want you to play. It's uh, Wheeler and Linda Vista on the screen. <laughs> could you do it? Yeah, I suppose. You could? Yeah, I suppose. That would not be a breach for you. That would well, not... it would have been. It would have been for most of my career, but I'm I'm getting older and <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little less precious about Got some it. of this stuff, right? Yeah. I'm really <laughs> struck by the way you contrast the two cities' theater cultures. Hmm. I mean, I actually know something about it now myself because I've both been in Chicago as a critic and I've also worked there as a playwright and, to a lesser degree, a kind of a backstage person, and. I like Chicago better. Hmm. It just seems to me a real, if I can say this, a no-bullshit town in hmm. terms of the theater culture. It also seems to be a very generous culture. Well, that's certainly true. Our, our community tends to be pretty generous and pretty supportive. You know, I, I've been there a long time, so I'm, and I'm a booster, so I'm not, uh, I'm not entirely objective about this. And the truth is I have so many friends in New York, and they do so much great work in this city. But uh, I don't know. I, I prefer uh, Chicago. You know, the truth is that most of the differences are economic. Exactly. Right? Most you can have a wine in any theater town it's that is in New York, York, I think, is it's not money driven. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it, and it uh, has affected uh, the, the theater culture here in ways that people aren't even aware of. Right. Right? The, the, the star system. There's no star system in the theater anywhere in the country other than New York City. Right. But there's a very good reason that that star system exists here. You know, I, I, I had somebody recently, they were in a play with a big star, and I, I kind of gave them the eye roll and said, <laughs> what was that like? And they said, you know, I like doing plays with stars. And I said, tell me about that. And she said, well, sometimes the audience who comes in, they're not, a, they're not a theater audience, right? Sometimes they're a tourist audience, and mm -hmm. they've come in, and a star makes them feel protected. They mm -hmm. feel like they're in good hands. Right, it's like, right. oh, they're going to come out on stage and I'm going to be taken care of because this person, I've seen this person. I know that they know what they're doing. I had, it had never occurred to me that, uh, so they, they're just different environments. Right. They just work in very different ways. Well, sometimes, sometimes they really actually are right for the, <laughs> the part. Right. And you're even more pleased. You're pleased with yourself for having, you know, right. forked over the money to go see them. You feel validated yeah. in that way. The, the pyramid in this town may be a little bit upside down, right? I mean, some of the better work tends to be off and off off right, Broadway right, right. rather than on Broadway. And the, and the, but the argument in places like Chicago or in Washington is not, will it move, for example. Right. It's, it's, it's the, the run for the run's sake. And here, it's very much like, you know, what's the, what is the bottom line result? That's what right. is the result of ha having done this? Can it be seen by more people in a bigger stage? Mm. And that's not really what we do. The food chain is not quite that um, right. that uh, Darwinian. The, the the run for the run's sake is a big thing. I mean, you, if you go to Chicago, you're there to do the work. You're not there to become a star. You're not there to make any money. You can't make any money. Right. It's it's not going to happen. It's not going to lead to the next thing. Mm. We don't have film and TV mm. in Chicago for mm. the most part. They're a little bit, but not really. So you're there to work on your craft. And I have to say, Chicago audiences, they're very adventuresome. They, they, they want to see new work. Right. They will seek out. In, they will go to those storefronts right. and look for new work. And even at Steppenwolf, if we do too many revivals, we'll hear it from our subscribers. That, that's not why they're there. Right. They don't, they're not there to see mm -hmm. another Miller revival. 
Exactly. Uh, right? They're there to see the new place. I talked to a group of uh, Chicago theater goers who would come to New York to see some shows, and the questions were of a completely different range than what I was accustomed to sometimes from talking to audiences here, to theater right. here. They wanted the new, where's the new work? What's the thing that right. really is changing the space yeah. here? Yeah. Which I thought was really kind of wonderful. Yeah. When I see a new play in New York, often the next thing I want to do is see a different production of it. And I go to Chicago. Yeah. And typically what's happening is in New York I saw the production in Chicago, I see the play. Hmm. That's interesting. That's a, that's a compliment. It, it, it's meant to be. Yeah. Well, you know, we could do uh, a series as long as a Homeland season. <laughs> this will come out in in box set. At, you know, if we if we if we keep this man here too much longer. So, listen, Tracy. It's so much fun talking to you. You know, you've got you know three critics here who you know could do this all day with you. Uh, Thanks really for having me. You really opened my eyes to a lot of things in this conversation. Oh, excellent. Good. Yeah. It's nice it's, to meet you all. And uh, Linda Vista well. is playing on Broadway now at, uh, second, at uh, the Helen Hayes Theater. And coming up soon is The Minutes, correct? Is that coming up Broadway? soon, yes. February. Uh, coming up in, yeah, is that right? February. Yes, yes. Yeah, February. February. And you're reuniting <laughs> with the, uh, Anadi Shapiro, yes. uh, director of August, well, for us here. That's mostly what she's known for right. in New York, to be very specific there. She's a longtime collaborator of mine. She directed the first production of uh, uh, August Osage County, Man from Nebraska. Yeah, that's a great play. Uh, and uh, she's the first one who put me on the main stage at Steppenwolf. She directed a production of Three Days of Rain that I did there with Amy Morton and Jan Barford. Oh my in God. 1998, wow. in a long time ago. Wow. So. That's something. Yeah. Did, did you actually just? I, I can't. I, I can't resist. Did you know that Jan Barford was going to be Wheeler? What did you have? So you. No. There's I didn't. such an amazing. Yeah. Symbiosis. Connection. Yes. Yeah, symbiosis between actor and and, yeah. and character here. That and since you've known him for a while, I was wondering if you had you know, him in I, mind when you. I don't tend to write with actors in mind. You don't. Okay. Uh, it's. I find it it's limiting. I think to myself, oh, they're not going to do this very well, so I won't, uh, uh-huh. I won't write it with them in mind. There are a few exceptions to that. I wrote a Bug with Michael Shannon in mind. Mm-hmm. I wrote the role of Maddie Fay in August Osage County with Rondi Reed in mind. I wrote Franco in Superior Donuts with John Michael Hill mm. in mind. So there are exceptions to that, but for the most part, I find it limiting. Now, what happens is that we have such a great resource of ensemble members of the company that I write the, the play, and then I sit down with Anna, our artistic director, and say, well, who do we get for this? And she looks at the play, and she says, well, we get Jan. He's the <laughs> obvious person. I look, a guy I've had associations with for 30 years now, and I say, well, of course, it's Jan, who... You talk about character actors. He's played mostly supporting roles at the theater, and it just seemed like a great chance to say, "Here, uh, have it. Have yeah. it. Yeah. Step the out front with this one. It's yeah. a gift. Yeah. It's a gift yeah. to an actor of that kind. Yeah, of it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for making time to talk to us. Oh, today. thanks you all. Thanks so it was much. a pleasure. A pleasure for us too. Well, I would say that uh, for episode forty. Uh, that was a really uh, that was an interview of note. I think that was it really, sure was. Uh, really, 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 really. Uh, uh, enlightening. It's a, it's a high bar. Yeah. That's um, yeah. If it wasn't evident to all of you listening, what a nice person. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 A, a, a man of light-hearted, good humor. Anyway, 
Uh, well, as usual, we're going to wrap things up with a discussion of some shows we've seen since our last podcast. And because we're in the middle of the fall season rush, we thought we'd each pick two shows, maybe of varying degrees of uh, pleasure for <laughs> us. Uh, I'll start off with a, a show that I thought had some merit in terms, topically speaking, but just the execution was off. It's a new play by a playwright named Sharon Rothstein, and it's called Right to be Forgotten. And the theme is, could be more up to date. It's about... That's a, a great title it right is a gr- And it's about a young man uh, who committed a minor, not minor, but a, a serious uh, infraction in high school. He stalked a girl. And it never went beyond that, but it stayed. the event stayed on the internet and blew up there. And now he's 10 years older, and he's actually a, a grad student, uh, and, and, and a quite an accomplished person. But the thing that's completely ruining his chances of, of progressing is a thing on the internet from, him, from 10 years ago that labels him as a stalker. And it tells that story of what he tries to go through in terms of working through the government um, and, the, and the legislature and through a lawyer to try to get that erased. It's an interesting premise, you know, but the, the, the issue play, the topical play today needs some kind of overhaul, I think. It's so formulaic. It, it, it goes, you're, you're always one step ahead of where it is, which is a huge problem. We're all so well-versed in this, in this format. You know, the, the characters are almost plot points. You can guess, you know, the, the offended woman, the young girl he wants to date, who, founds out, who's, who he confesses this uh, to, the lawyers, the attorney general. I mean, it has these, those kind of, and I find that they, over they, and over it, again. It, it always feels like they're workshopped to death. Yeah, you know, right. like yeah exactly. Of- it's, it's, you know, it, 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 it is like a play that's trying to answer all the questions on a checklist without ever being compelling. So that's unfortunate. The one I really, really enjoyed isn't theater, isn't theater per se at all, mm-hmm. which was the concert of American Utopia on Broadway that David Byrne, formerly the uh, lead singer and um, guitarist for Talking Heads, has brought to Broadway uh, at the Hudson Theater. And I just found it uh, so, uh, it was in a way, you know, it's a cerebral concert. It actually has a focus and a thought behind it. And... Uh, uh, and the music, of course, both from this new this this studio album of American Utopia, and going back to some of the uh, Talking Heads hits like Burning Down the House, uh, are all incorporated into it. But he and a band of eleven uh, people uh, uh, create this this kind of wonderful. You know, feel-good celebration, I would call it, kind of. It's just, it has a, a, a mind and a heart, this show. And I found it really compelling. Does it feel like a show more than a concert? That is the sort of the fundamental question, and one we are struggling with over and over again, I think, on Broadway. Uh, you, know, I, you know, again, you could, you could look to things like Darren Brown and his, his, his illusion, not illusion, but his uh, mind-reading show, uh, Darren Brown's Secret, and even Freestyle Love Supreme, which is in itself is a kind of concert performance. Right. Mm-hmm. These things are all, I think, melding together on Broadway. So I don't even know if these definitions are even useful to be trying to flesh out. I think to the degree that it has a design, it has a choreographic sort of core. It, you could almost call it a dance show at times. It's so beautifully choreographed by Annie B. Parson. Um, that it has the elements of of spectacle and uh, theater 
without really being a fully theatrical experience. Mm -hmm. You know, when I go to the theater, I want to see shows. I I just have to admit, Mm. I, I, I don't mean that other kinds of experience can't be completely valid in their own way. But there's a lot of places where you can get them. Mm-hmm. And this has been on tour all over the world, by the way. Yeah. I just rather feel like I would like to defend the theatrical space, especially in New York, for shows that are really shows. Well, I, I will say also, if, you know, that we're going in, that things are expanding in the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, the Blasco Theater is about to be for a month a movie theater. Uh, that Netflix is going to use it for to show movies. So. You know, there are degrees of, you know, it's like save it for live performance at some point is going to become the, the mantra. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder. Well, I have, we're doing a thumbs up and a thumbs down, and I've seen two shows that for me fit perfectly into that framework. Uh, the thumbs sort of down uh, is the Roundabout Theater Company's revival of Tennessee Williams' The Rose Tattoo. Uh, it's a play that has not gotten done much. It was last done in New York and. 1995. It has a huge cast, which I think is part of the reason why it doesn't turn up as much as it might in revival. But also, it's just a tricky play to bring off because it truly falls between the stools of broad comedy and serious drama. And I don't think that this revival, uh, directed by Trip Coleman, uh, gets the balance right. It feels, it feels sketch-like. It feels like all of the all, all of the Italian movie cliches that you ever that you ever saw in an old uh, Carol Burnett episode. Ooh, and those accents. Yeah, and and the accents. It's. She said, "I can say that." Yes, <laughs> of course you can say that. I mean, you're expert. You're expert witness here. Absolutely. Uh, I do not. I feel that the the thing about the rose tattoo is it is a serious play, and you can't make it work unless the comedy is grounded in some real perception of life and I just don't feel that that's happening in this revival. Uh, Marissa Tomei is a marvelous stage actor but her energy is essentially comic and this is not that kind of role and uh, uh, also he's tampered with the script he's re- he's removed a major character uh, uh, the priest hmm. uh, distributed his lines elsewhere. Uh, you really feel that on some level the director of this show is not willing to accept the play as it is what do you think it does to a piece like Rose Tattoo to have a underwhelming revival on Broadway? Does it? Do you think it does damage to the play itself over time? That it's like I wouldn't touch that with a ten-foot pole kind of I think reaction for, that people for, might have for a generation of playgoers and also professionals. They're going to say, well, you know, I saw that at the roundabout, and it just doesn't fly. Right. You know, uh, what's going to happen is then some British director is going to do it. You know, as an immersive, I don't know, like some, and then and then they'll bring it back. That's always what happens with those, you know, quote unquote, cursed plays. Right. And then there are some that seem indestructible, like American Buffalo, which was a disaster. Oh God. Uh, the last time with like Cedric the Entertainer, and I mean it was a very, and now oh. it's coming back with with Sam Rockwell, Lawrence Fishburne, and Darren Chris. But the Rose Tattoo is very destructible. It is a play mm. that has had a difficult revival right. life. Right, and right, right. You don't you don't have to have too many failures before people decide they don't want to touch it. But that's it. It's interesting. Now, conversely, downtown at the Public Theater, I saw the the premiere. Um, David Henry Wong's uh, the, wrote the Soft Power. 
which is a new, I, I forget, what exactly do they call it? I want to get this right. A musical in a play or something? The, the or distinction is oh, important. Right. It is called A Play with a Musical. And that's just what it is. Uh, it is a play about how uh, David Henry Wong, a character who is called DHH in the cast listing, uh, is invited by a Shanghai producer to turn a Chinese film rom-com into a, a Broadway musical with the purpose not just of making money but of projecting into the West Chinese ideas about how society ought to be organized. Um, now, that's the wraparound uh, for reasons that I don't want to explain here because they're awfully complicated and it's a reveal, we see the musical inside the play. And the musical is a mirror image parody of The King and I, which is seen from the reverse point of view, which is the civilized Chinese characters come to barbaric America to civilize the American characters. Um, it is the most brilliant parody imaginable. It hits every mark in this show. Uh, and the, the neat thing is that they acknowledge that they also love The King and I and think that it's emotionally moving. Uh, they just recognize that it's kind of a mess in terms of the message that it projects. But they understand that it has emotional power. And they've done something I'm not sure I've ever seen. They've written a pastiche, a parody musical, that itself has emotional weight. All of this is happening in the context of this uh, play in a musical. Uh, it's frightfully hard to write about, or at least I found it so. Uh, I had to spend four-fifths of my review writing the synopsis of this show. Well, that, but, to me, was part of the problem with it. Um, I want to see felt so. the soft power that you saw... Uh, uh, on the stage, I had. I think it is indeed a brilliant idea. I think it's a brilliant thing that I saw um, David Henry Wong attempt to create. I think he got a little tied up in his own cleverness, and the, you lose some of that wonderful. Uh, what you described as this wonderful mirror image quality in the other conceits that he introduces. I would say that, for example, that scene. That satirical scene in which the uh, we have the talk back uh, 50 years and in, in the future, which really muddies the whole thing for me. I mean, it's clever when they have the Chinese commenting on the, um, the, the sort of the former powerful United States and what, what has transpired. But it's almost like one too many turns, this piece. Now, sometimes a mess can be beautiful and wonderful. And I thought a lot of it was really entertaining. I think it just... It seems it feels like it loses its way a little bit. Yours is the majority view on this show, and I absolutely understand why people feel this way. All I can tell you is that this was one of those shows when five minutes in, I was on board and stayed there all the way to the curtain. And to me, I can't deny that feeling. I, when I, I feel I, that, I, want you to. It's, I just feel like I'm. I'm on the right track, and I, I'm, I urge people to see the show and see for yourself. Is it, and last thought is, isn't it a wonderful thing? Isn't this the whole idea of what collectively reviews are for? You know, not to look at anyone, just one. You know, to take in the context of your adoration, your love of the adulation of this piece, and understand that other people who also appreciated it had some objections to aspects of it. I mean, audiences, I think, would be 
well served by looking at a range of reviews to get the, to get to get their own portrait. Well, I mean, actually, I haven't seen uh, the the show yet, but you, you, this is exactly what we lost. Were we losing what we lost? I mean, have we lost it already? I think we have. Mm. In the shrinking right. of of the critical field, yeah, and that's just really disheartening. Right. Well, it's also, I mean, it, when when Tracy Letts was with us a little earlier in the show, talking about the Chicago theater scene. Uh, Everything costs so damn much in New York. Mm-hmm. If Soft Power had been a Broadway show, and it's not in any way a Broadway show, right. it would work there. But if it were, you just you couldn't tell people to go see a difficult show in the expectation that they're going to be entertained in a conventional way. Right, right. I, I in a community like Chicago, this is what they expect. That's interesting. Well, I think actually there are some weird and difficult shows that are coming to Broadway. That's I mean, true also. Like, when you see what's been playing the last two or three years, I mean, did I expect to see Slave play on Broadway? Right. No. Not in my wildest <laughs> dreams. Is it doing uh, okay? No. I, no. Well, I mean, it's it's not a hit. But, you know, it's it's a limited run. Well, why not? Yeah. Well, why yeah. not put it out there? And yeah. uh, Well, that's right. So, I, again, another thing that Tracy was talking about is that in New York, or that you brought up, Peter, in New York, we think in terms of what's the bottom line. Right. If, if, right. if it's all Broadway, is it going to transfer? Right. And in Chicago, it's about the work. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't help but feel that way. This is New York. We have Broadway here. Right. But a show as daring as as uh, Soft Power or Slight Play, for that matter, really ought to be able to stand outside this kind of conveyor belt expectation. Mm. And Broadway just throws all your thoughts, it deflects all your thoughts in a bad direction. So I'm really, I'm really glad that it was the public theater that did this show. Well, my uh, my pick actually is not really a, a, a pick or two. It's a, I, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, BAM, uh, in Brooklyn, uh, which is one of the major cultural institutions in town. <laughs> has a new artistic director, uh, David Binder, and this is uh, his very first season at the helm. The first season he fully programmed uh, has now started. And I, it's interesting because he comes from the commercial world of Broadway. He was a producer, so now he's uh, in a very, very different environment. Uh, and I think he's going to take the institution in a very interesting direction. I'm not sure how much it's going to work, but I was reminded... When Peter was talking about, okay, well, is the David Byrne show, is it a theatrical experience? Well, not sure. I think so, some people are going to have the same questions about some of what David mm. Binder is presenting in, in, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just uh, saw uh, half <laughs> of a uh, one-off show, for instance, uh, last weekend. And, of course, half of that show still means that I saw 12 hours of it since the show was 24 hours long. Um, is what, it what, what, what it is called? that? It was called the Second Woman. Uh, it's a very uh, weird thing where uh, one professional actor here was uh, Alia Shawkat from Arrested Development. Oh yeah, I love her. Uh, she's, she was wonderful. <laughs> That's what she chose to make her New York State debut, by the way. Good for her. Uh, she has a series of five-minute interactions with a hundred different men, and they <laughs> do the same thing, same scene over and over and over and over again. And it was so addictive. I could not. Every time I was like, How okay, I'm tired. Hmm? How long was the scene? 
but five to seven minutes because there was a little bit of room for improv. So five to seven minutes, and then there was a reset. Did they have uh, a script? Did the, uh, did they? Yes, the, uh, the, uh, the, the men were uh, non-professional actors. There were like a few Volunteers actors actually kind of? snuck in. Well, they were paid, and actually the payment was part of it. The, they were paid $50 oh. each. Wow. Uh, and they were paid on stage, uh, though they did not know they would be offered the money on stage. So there was a, almost an element of surprise as to when she <laughs> handed them a $50 bill. <laughs> uh, and some of them I did not I'd take it. it. Really? Uh, yeah, it was it was How pretty amazing. How many did you see? Oh my God, dozens! I mean, I saw yeah, I saw well half of the hundred, I guess, just about. <laughs> Golly, <laughs> it was insane. Um, I did not do the twelve hundred, the twelve hundred. I didn't do the twelve hours in a row. What's the essence? Is it a stunt? Well, you know what was interesting is that, but uh, well, there's definitely a stunt element to it, but. It was really fantastic to look at the way... It, it's really about how men and women interact. Yeah. It's a very mm -hmm. short breakup scene. Mm -hmm. And the way the men handled it... Well, she was reacting more to what they were doing. Right. But the way they handled it, because she, she also had never met any of them until they turned up on stage. Right. I don't know, it sounds like a, to me like a David Ives parody. Right. It was, it was kind of amazing. And some of them were really sweet. At one point, they, they, they eat uh, takeout noodles, which were kind of like dry vermicelli. They didn't have any <laughs> sauce or anything on it. And she throws her box of noodles to their face, which also they did not know. Uh, so, but then at the end of each segment, she had to clean up the noodles. I see. Oh, my for God. The, prepare for the next one. And only one man out of the Help? dozens that I saw helped clean it up. <laughs> one so man. So you're, you're gleaning other things. So it was right. completely addictive because I, yeah. I, I would get tired. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go home and then I'll come back. I'm going to go home after this. I'm just going to watch one more. And then like an hour I passed and I'd watch breaks? Oh, Excuse me. Breaks, right? Every two hours or something, there's a break. Yeah, there was a 15-minute break every two hours, but then I lived nearby and I uh, I watched six hours and went home, slept, and then I came back and I did another six you hours. You remember the old potato chip commercial, Peter? Bet you can't eat just, just one. one. Yeah. It was it was like this really feeling of binging that you get when you get into you fall into this k hole of <laughs> of, of insanity. Wow. But anyway, and then I saw Swan Lake also at, at BAM, uh, which was definitely not your tutu Swan Lake. Uh, which was a, more like a dance theater piece. And I think what he's doing, and there's one coming up where the audience watch half of it live and then they go to the movie theater and they watch a video version of it. Mm. Do you, is this theatrical? I don't know. He's watching mm. a movie. Is half of your theater, theatrical experience watching a movie, does this qualify? Anyway, I don't know where he's going with this, but uh, I think he's trying interesting stuff. And... There's definitely a feeling that he's throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and see what's going to stick. Mm. And why not? The noodles, of course. The noodles, the noodles, uh, well, fortunately, they did not stick because otherwise, I mean, the mess was, but yeah, no, mm. only one cleaned up. Oh, mm. and one, there was one woman out of the hundred and she also cleaned it up. Oh my God, that's great. Yeah. Now, aren't they also doing a Medea out there Yes, as well? actually, yeah. there's a little bit of something more Bobby traditional. Kind of They're bringing Rose Simon Hart. Stone the director of Yerma, to do a media with Bobby Cannavale and Rose Byrne. They're married. So they're still going into the kind of like, bam, high concept. They got to feed But with their stars. They with stars. Their audience. With stars. You know. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode and had a wonderful interview with, with Tracy Letts, but unfortunately, 
we all have to go out and live our lives and clean up our noodles. So uh, it's time. That was cute. For the thank you, it's time for us to say goodbye for the 40th episode of Three on the Isle. I'm Terry Teachout. I'm Elizabeth Vincentilli. And I'm Peter Marks. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is Erica Huang. You can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle and write to us at Three on the Isle at gmail.com. Spell out three, please. Please also let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes or people you might like us to interview. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on the aisle picking up noodles.